Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you and yeah, your beautiful faces. And to those on the cafe, I think you guys heard last uh, Wednesday, we made a decision that um, for first service uh, in the cafe, for those that have jobs or prefer to wear a mask that want to be sort of, you know, away from everyone else like that, just for protection and what have you, we opened up the cafe only for those that wear a mask. So I know we have Two ladies over there this morning. I'm blessed by that, and uh, and uh, just uh, want to say good morning to you guys too. And for those of you at home, um, I know the weather was not the best here this morning, but I really want to invite y'all to come out and not forsake the gathering of the saints. It's really important, and it's really good to see you. So, uh, please open your Bibles as we introduce a new book this morning, First Thessalonians. Not new, as in new to the Christian but new to us here as far as going line by line and verse by verse. We've been making our way through the entire Bible, and uh, what a blessed time. We've, we've come as far as 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, all the way from Genesis, and we do that on Wednesday nights and then on Sunday mornings. We've come all the way from Matthew to uh, 1 Thessalonians, so that's exciting as we're making our way through the uh, Pauline epistles, and soon we'll be moving into the pastoral epistles with Timothy and what have you. So I'm excited. Uh, uh, should the Lord tarry, uh, we'll be through the whole Bible here probably in another year or so or more. All right, maybe like three years at the pace I go. But uh, we're getting all the meat off the bone. And the next time we go through it, we'll definitely be going through more of the Hebrew and the Greek. And we're going to go a little deeper. Um, this is sort of our cursory. I like to call it the cursory view that we go through scripture the first time around with the flock. So um, I can't wait to, as the Lord continues to speak to our hearts, and we continue to go deeper into his word and press closer into Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Well, let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we do thank you always for your holy word, and Lord, for all that we are to learn, see um, here this morning. Thank you that you've gathered us all together, even on this uh, lightly snowy morning, Lord, uh, just that we're together, and we are in your presence, and you are on the throne, and Lord, no matter the craziness that's going on in this world, all is well with our soul, Lord, even in spite of the affliction and persecution that comes to the Christian, Lord. We, as we're going to read and we're going to see here this morning, uh, the Christian has great joy in spite of all of these things, Lord, because we have been given a hope that surpasses really uh, even understanding, Lord, the fact that you love us so much that you are going to come again and rapture us out of this world, Lord. And that you will come again at the end of the uh, great tribulation with us as the saints, as you teach us in your holy word, and we will um, be ministering to you, Lord. And we pray that, Lord, the lost and dying uh, people in this world that have not received you today would be the day of salvation, Lord. And we'd be living our lives in a pure way that draws people to you, Jesus. We pray and we ask this in your holy and mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. Well, good again. Good to see you this morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel if it's your first time here. So if you're new to Calvary Chapel, uh, you should have, uh, we do this in every book, but you should have received an outline and it's a few pages and um, that's just for your study reference library at home. I mean, we can talk a little bit about it here, but it's important that you have that. So as you're studying these books, you know, God has given us a brain and he wants us to study the word of God intelligently so that we have context uh, and that's what we're going to spend really during our first teaching. We'll get through probably two verses this morning. But the idea is to set the context of what was going on in Thessalonica, okay? 
And I'm going to draw us to certain passages in Acts so that you guys all track with me on Paul's second missionary journey, okay? So we can see how Paul ended up there, what was going on, what was the Holy Spirit inspiring, and, and why we have this book today, and why the church needs to uh, read this book. Because one of the things that's near and dear to my heart is, like you, I'm concerned that many churches are not teaching the book of Revelation anymore. They're not teaching the book of Daniel. They're not going through prophecy and scripture. And 1 Thessalonians is very, very prophetic book, and a lot of it's going to tell us about what's coming, future events. But also, it's a model church. And I don't use that word lightly. Paul uses that, not me. That's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He uses that idea and term of a model church and what that's to look like. So when you think of your Bible, we, we've certainly been going through the Pauline epistles and the places that Paul's been as he's been planting, planting works. But I want sort of in our minds, if we could think of one church that we would describe as a model church, what that looks like. Paul would describe through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that church in Thessalonica. And there's some very interesting things that happen and are questions being asked by that church of why God would say this is a model church. People are watching. And that's what he's saying. People are watching, church. You are an example. So as a way of introduction, you, you can visit Thessalonica today, right? A, a travel guide will call it uh, Thessaloniki or key, Thessaloniki, right? Uh, used by a different term. It used to be known as uh, Salonica or Salonica or Salonica, depending on how you want to pronounce it. It was an important industrial and commercial city, um, only in this area, only second to Athens. When you really begin to study uh, the population, somewhere between 100 and 2,000 uh, lived here. But just if, I, if I'm setting it so you know where we're talking about, where Paul was in, in his missionary journey, on his second missionary journey, Athens is about 100 miles. Do you remember we read in Acts how he says, you can turn there to Acts chapter 17, as a matter of fact, how he says that, you know, he traveled to Thessalonica. He actually went to Berea. Remember, he was in Philippi, Berea, and then he went from Berea to Athens and then Athens to Thessalonica. And we'll go through that in a minute. But it was situated and is one of the best natural harbors in the northern Aegean. And it was a meeting place where they had four main roads. Think of them as thoroughfares that actually culminated into the city. So, you know, we've heard the term, all roads lead to Rome. Well, what made Thessalonica such a bustling city in Paul's day, it was a major trade thoroughfare. It was a major cosmopolitan, if I can say a big city that way. And all roads had kind of led to that, not only to mention it was next to a harbor. Okay, so there's a lot of trade and a lot of people were coming there. And if you notice, as we study, Paul, uh, you know, the scriptures, Paul tended to go to these larger cities, there's a lot of other areas as you would make your way along this 100-mile or 50-mile stretch. He could have stopped at other towns. But what he did is he went to some of these capitals or some of the cities, Harrisburg, and these areas, and he planted the work trusting that God would raise up men to go into more of the rural areas and do what? Begin to teach and have house churches and plant the work. And really, that's the model in Calvary Chapel. That's what we do, right? And it's what we've been doing for years and years and years because it's first done in Scripture. And that's what Paul did. And so if you look, uh, I guess I would start out by saying it's important to note, just like Colossae, it was a Roman colony. And that's important because people, uh, the way, and I didn't sort of bring this out in Colossians, kind of maybe saving it for Thessalon Thessalonians here, but 
it was the way that they would colonize, Rome would colonize their people, wasn't by force. It was actually far more subtle than that. What they would turn around and do is they would begin to carry Roman products in the local markets. And they would begin to indoctrinate that way, sort of by slow and steady, never by force, should seem familiar right about now, never by force necessarily, but that slow easing drip of water until eventually you begin to think that way, you begin to assimilate, and you begin to identify more with Rome than you did with your own, you know, wherever you were from. That was their strategy. And coming to a city near you, we can find that today, okay? But I thought that was interesting as I was going through and thinking about these things, thinking about Thessalonica. How did they come to, you know, being a Roman colony, how did they even birth this church? How did the Lord do this? And I and, and how, what was being done to protect them from sharing these ideologies of the world and keeping them f- affixed or their eyes fixed on Christ Jesus? And it was that the Christians came together and they began to place themselves under the word. And so doing so, insulating themselves from what was going on around them, not lost from the fact that people needed salvation, but certainly not hook, line, and sinker being lured in to the flesh, the devil, and the world. And again, now you know why Paul said it's a model church, because 2,000 years later, I believe that's our calling for the day and time we're living today. We're not to be like the world. Certainly we're in it, but we're to be like Jesus. That's our example. That's our model, okay? If you look at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, Paul visited this church on his second missionary journey after being released from custody. Remember, he was put in prison in Philippi. It was approximately around AD 48 to 49 to help kind of uh, ground us in the dating here. Thessalonica was 50 miles west of Philippi. Okay, so we've talked about Philippi. We read Philippians. We're only talking about 50 miles, but remember in that day, 50 miles is quite a track. You know, if God's calling you, where won't you go for the Lord Jesus Christ? And after Paul left Thessalonica, he went to Berea. And then from Berea, he went to Athens and then to Corinth. And that's where many believe, including myself, I believe that that's where he was inspired to write this letter from Corinth um, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I believe it was not long after he had got to Corinth because of the writing, and we'll go through that as we study this line by line, why I believe that. But it was some four to six months. It wasn't very long until the Holy Spirit had inspired Paul. Just doing the math there, right, chronologically and dating that, that means that this letter would have been written somewhere around AD 50 to 52 in Corinth, right? And certainly, as you remember when I taught through the book of Galatians with you, that would mean that this is the earliest letter or rivals very closely to that letter to Galatia as far as the two earliest letters we have from the Apostle Paul. That's significant if you think about it because he's laying a very steady foundation. You can't read the book of Thessalonians and not come away with a full extent of doctrine, with understanding of salvation, sanctification. You come away with all the core principles, but then you also move into the questions of, you know, what happens when Christ returns? That's 2 Thessalonians. What happens when we're raptured? That's 1 Thessalonians. That's the real breakout between the two books as you study them. Fundamentally, there's certainly more in there. But when you have to look at the two books and you're breaking them out, just 
mentally to understand that. That's the big difference. The second Thessalonians is the actual coming, touching down, terra firma, at the end of the great tribulation, right? And then first Thessalonians focuses on more of the rapture and the church not entering into wrath. The wrath, not of oppression, affliction that we see today, not tribulation that we see today. We're talking about the great tribulation that Matthew 24 speaks of. We're talking about Revelation chapter 6 through 19 that's spoken of of a great tribulation, that the church is not given unto that wrath. And why I say this is important is because they had been given the underpinnings of the doctrine of the faith salvation, sanctification, all those things that are important to understand who Jesus is, his humanity, his divinity, all of that. But the thing that Paul knew that that church needed to bring them hope and comfort was to help them understand eschatology and time events. And that's why it's so important that churches and pastors teach on end time events and eschatology because the Bible does. And again, a third of your Bible, 27% teaches on that. And I know that there are pastors, maybe even that are hearing this, and they're a little nervous about teaching the book of Revelation or teaching the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's all right. You just take it line by line and verse by verse and trust the Holy Spirit will speak to the people. Let the word of God speak unto the people, right? And isn't that what we do here? We just let the word of God faithfully go. Well, back to where we're at here. Dr. Luke, if you look at Acts chapter 17, again, even verses 1 through 15, he explained how Paul came to Thessalonica and how the church was founded, right? Paul went to Macedonia in a response to a call. Do you remember that? From a man of Macedonia. If you look back just a little bit before Acts chapter 17, that would be Acts chapter 69, specifically for the Macedonia call if you're making footnotes in your Bible or notes in your Bible. And it says, come over to Macedonia and help us. If you remember, that wasn't Paul's original idea. Paul was heading towards Ephesus. He wanted to get there, right? And he eventually does on his third missionary journey. But he's going to go back and visit these churches. But first, he's going to plant them in his second missionary journey. And that's just a reminder that sometimes the Lord, you know, we have a desire in our heart. And the Lord uh, will come and he'll say, hold on now. And the Holy Spirit, hold on now. This is what I want you to do first. And then through obedience, we then will end up with the desires of our heart, don't we? In a Christ-centered way. So Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy arrived first in Philippi, okay? Where they led, you might remember Lydia, as we read the book of Acts, and her household to Christ, and there established the church. So this is what happened all leading up to this. Then Paul and Silas were arrested on a false accusation. They were beaten and put into jail. But God delivered them. And you remember that in Philippi, what happened? The jailer and his family also came to salvation, which is awesome, right? Uh, and faith in Christ. And after engaging the new believers, Paul and his friends left Philippi, though we believe, again, reading good uh, study of Acts, that Luke stayed behind temporarily and headed for the important city of Thessalonica. Now, as I mentioned to you before, they bypassed towns. So two in particular that I was looking at was Amphipolis, or Amphipolis, depending on who you want to pronounce, or Apollina, right? Uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. They bypassed them. These are smaller towns, and they head more towards the city. Again, not because they didn't have a, a burden for those people that lived in those uh, cities or towns, but because Paul's policy was to minister in large cities, right? And then have the believers reach out to the smaller towns nearby. We are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, right? It takes a total, a whole church, not, not just an under-shepherd. It's the whole church that are ministers of Jesus Christ. 
And again, it's about a 50 to 100 mile trek from Philippi to um, Thessalonica, depending on the route. Now, why is Paul doing all this? Because if you remember back to Acts chapter 9, Paul, like you and I, received a commission. Paul's commission specifically, we call it the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28, verses 19. But you and I received this commission as well, to go forward, to go with the gospel. Go doesn't mean you have to go to Tanzania. Go means you step out of your house and you walk to the left or right and you go to your neighbors. Are you praying on your block? Do you prayer walk? Are you covering and bathing your block in prayer, right? Are you bathing your home, your family in prayer? Do you venture off your block and go to the next neighborhood? How about that, right? This is all of what God has attended for the believer. It wasn't that we were to keep this great news to ourselves because it is the greatest news ever, isn't it? Is the greatest news ever to come to humanity that Christ is risen and he died to forgive your sin and my sin. Praise Jesus for that. Well, Paul had received a commission, but his was a little bit different in that Acts chapter 9 verse 15 tells us that he was specifically to go who? To the Gentiles. Do you remember that? The Gentiles. And then Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 12, we read that he always started his ministry with the Jews first. The local synagogue was the place where the Old Testament law was known and revered at that time, okay? So Paul would get a sympathetic hearing, if I could say it that way, by going into a synagogue. He knew that some people had foundation, at least God-fears or like Jewish people that were listening there, at least until the persecution began, because the persecution did begin even in the synagogues. And there were many Gentiles, which were called God-fears in the synagogues. And through them, Paul could begin to witness to the pagan Gentiles. And it's at this point that also Paul had a great burden for the Jews. And we read that in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. We read that in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. And that's where he comes up with the historical principle, right, that we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Jew first, the Jew first. It was because he was going into these synagogues and he was watching his brothers and his sisters basically not receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and therefore being damned and separated eternally from God because the law can't save. And it doesn't take a compassionate, even, you know, overly sympathetic heart to turn around and realize that even today there are people, whether we know them or not, that are dying all around us, not just physically, but more importantly, spiritually. And unless the Lord moves and puts it on our hearts, and oh, he has, to turn around and go and give the good news of the gospel, their decision in this life to reject Jesus Christ will come with an eternal consequence. Something we don't wish for anybody, not even our worst enemy, we would never wish that upon. Amen? Well, this is all tied into Paul and you can see why Paul and his associates began to work in the synagogues. So he ministered in the synagogues as we're going to read here, and we read in the book of Acts. It says uh, three weeks. If you look at Acts chapter 17, verse 2, it says three Sabbaths, or Shabbats, three Sundays. And the Lord worked in power, right? Many people believed in Jesus Christ that were saved, including several high-ranking women. However, the unbelieving Jews began to oppose the work, and Paul and his helpers uh, were required or told to leave the city. So they went, like I said, some 40 miles, a little different than, you know, the full-on stretch. They went to Berea. 
They had a good ministry there. Remember that? He, they, you know, we read it's a good thing to be a Berean, one that would read the word of God, question, seek out the truth, know the scriptures, read the scriptures. Those are good things. But unfortunately, the Jews from Thessalonica followed them to Berea and began to cause trouble there as well. It was then that Paul left for Athens and he made his way over to Corinth where he spent some year and a half, okay? Is this helping chronologically your understanding what's going on, setting context, that this didn't just happen overnight? There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, inspiration of the Holy Spirit as this man is being faithful and it seems like he's going with the good news and, you know, he wants to give the gospel and yet people are not receiving him. Some are, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are beating him and putting him in prison. He's facing a lot of oppression. He's facing a lot of affliction, which is why I look to you all this morning and say, we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus is in offense. We shouldn't be surprised when we lovingly, not Bible thump, but lovingly bring Jesus Christ to somebody and they turn around and they beat you, whether that's even physical, as in Israel, because you go over to Israel today and you can give the word of God and you can preach and there are rabbis and there are religious leaders that will frown upon that. That is, you're walking and you speak of Yeshua, you speak of Messiah, say he's the lowest of the low of the Jews. That's how they'll speak about our Lord, their Lord. They don't know him yet, but that's how they'll speak about him. They'll turn around and rip shirts off your back if you have Jesus loves or, you know, Messiah, Yeshua, you know, something like that. They'll rip it off. They're, please, this happens today. This happens today. This isn't all years ago. No, no, this is still happening today. And even in our country, in America, we're watching laws being passed that are literally trying to take our religious freedoms and remove them. Meanwhile, this country was founded on the idea of religious freedom and liberty that we can all pursue God, right? Now, we know that there's other people that are pursuing other gods, right? But that's heathenism and paganism, and we've seen that, and that's no different. But the beauty that we and God has blessed this nation, or previously had blessed this nation, was because we sought the one true God. And our laws, our laws closely, not so much anymore, but originally our laws closely aligned with much of Scripture. You think that was a coincidence, that because we did it God's way and our design for government was similar to God's design of what he would have, not necessarily a monarchy, but a theocracy where we reverence the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ. You know, our children began in the 60s and 50s and 40s, 1903. They would begin with a Bible or a kid's Bible that was their first instruction manual. They went into kindergarten with that. And the way they learned A was for Adam, right? Or you know, in the Hebrew, Aleph, right? The first letter of the Hebrew Bible, right? Or the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, right? They, they, they learned these things and they were tied back. And do you think, again, I've said it so many times, do you think there's any reason or any suspicion of why we see the Bibles removed from schools today? Why prayer is removed from schools? That schools, public schools, are more willing to entertain Satan clubs after school programs than they are to have the Bible opened in the classroom? Do you think that's just a coincidence? Friends, it's not. Satan is on the prowl. And it's only intensifying because we are getting closer and closer to the last day where the Lord is going to rapture, remove the church, and he knows he doesn't want the bride of Christ to be busy about God's 
occupying, as scripture would say, God's business. And so he's doing everything he can to stop that. And again, Thessalonica was facing all of these things. How do they respond, right? How do they respond? You know, they had home missions. And um, when I think about uh, the support for Philippi, offerings we know that of, right? Philip, or for Thessalonica, we read in Philippians 4.16 that Thessalonica received two offerings from the church of Philippi, from the, the home churches in Philippi, to turn around and support what our brothers and sisters were doing in Thessalonica. It's the body of Christ. It's the church. It's not just Calvary Chapel, Harrisburg. And I think that's important for us to remember and understand that we have brothers and sisters all around the world in every country, many of them facing martyrdom, many pastors being put in prison and, and being beaten, many young women and, and, and men and families being torn apart because if they don't deny Jesus, they're being tortured and martyred. This is happening today. And if you know the call of the martyrs or you're familiar with the work you know, go back and read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you can see these things. And yet, whenever there's intense persecution and oppression, the church multiplies. It multiplies. It's off the charts the way the, the church multiplies because people that are willing to die to be a witness to Jesus Christ and never deny him, you don't think other people turn around and hear that and see that and wonder, what do they have that I don't? There's a conviction in that. Paul, during this time also, he worked at tent making. That was what he did. Paul's calling certainly was as an apostle. He was teaching the word of God. But he had tent making to support himself, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. We read that in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. And many people, as you mentioned, because I mentioned Acts 17 too, question, say, well, was he really only there three weeks? I don't really believe that. And let me explain why. As we stu study these, uh, these two letters, we'll discover that almost every major doctrine of the Christian faith is mentioned. I, I would find that near impossible to do in three weeks, especially as somebody who under-shepherds a church. And even if I was meeting every day, uh, it takes years and years sitting under the Word of God to properly understand and watch as God illuminates and teaches us because as we grow and mature, there's always more. We can always take another rake through it. God can string additional pearls and show us the harmony of the entire scriptures, all 66 books. And I'm always reminded by that. Even brothers I love that are pastors that are, have been pastoring for 40 years. And, you know, you, you would think and go to them. You know, I think of Pastor Joe Foch as some, you know, Pastor Bill Gallatin, right? Pastor Damian Kyle. These are guys that have been around 30 and 40 years. And I, you know, you ask them, hey, you ever get to the place where you really feel like you have a, you know, the, you read the Bible? Oh, no. Every time I open the Word of God, there's something new. The Lord meets me in Scripture. And I'm constantly learning from the Lord. And I think that's beautiful, isn't it? That's beautiful. I, I don't know how long many of you have been Christians, but we never grow weary or tired of the Word of God because there's always something new in there. And God is always conforming and transforming our hearts that as we go to Him, He's always doing a work and showing us something new. Well, Paul was in Thessalonica, I believe, somewhere between one to four months. Again, I've stated, I believe that's because of the depth of the doctrine and some of the questions uh, that he taught, you know, again, being a model church. And I think the questions about eschatology end times, again, this isn't cursory. This isn't something that is light. It's not a light inquest. 
And so again, as I study the other scriptures, the fact that he brought this out in the model church of Thessalonica there uh, tells me that they were getting uh, definitely more than just a cursory overview of scripture or of the apostles' doctrine of Acts 2.42. And I, and I keep saying model church, and you might be wondering where I get that from. If you look just in your Bibles at Acts, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, so that you become examples to all of Macedonia and Achaia who believe. It says it right there. As an example, you are a model to this area that you would become a model church, right? Uh, that's exactly what Paul had, uh, I don't want to say challenged, but he was certainly sharing that with the church of Thessalonica. They understood the foundation of the faith, and naturally they began to ask more mature questions. That's what happens in each and every one of us. Uh, when is Christ going to return, and did they miss any end-time events? I think that's very apropos because you have many people that are either not teaching any end-time event at all, right, and they're sensationists from the Holy Spirit's perspective, and they just, they don't touch end on anything in Revelation, Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, 1st, uh, 2nd Thessalonians, uh, Matthew, chapter 24. They don't touch on those end-time events. Either you have one sort of sphere that way, or you've got the other sphere where they're teaching so much that, hey, Jesus Christ is coming physically to earth tomorrow. And you got to step back and go, wait a minute. Hang on now. Hang on now. There's some things that need to occur, like a rebuilt temple, right? There's, so there, there's an extreme there, certainly, that we need to visit and make sure everything's done in decency and order. 1 Corinthians 14.40. And so, I, again, I believe we come, if just a simple reading of Scripture, we come in, and I don't like to use the word balanced, but I believe we come at it with a balanced approach. The fullness of love, the fullness of truth, right? We don't get emotionally uh, excited and lathered up in some way to strike fear into folks. No, we study eschatology because the promise in 1 Thessalonians is that it brings hope, and that hope brings what? Comfort. Comfort. That's why God gave us these end-time events that we don't have to wonder, because it's supposed to comfort you. Which is why I also say the bride of Christ is not going to go through the great tribulation because there's nothing comforting about that. Not a single lick is comforting to think about going through the greatest tribulation of humanity. There are people that even after Paul's time, if you study early church history, were beginning to teach that revelation had already been fulfilled, right? Oh my. They have no idea yet when you study scripture, if you really study Revelation 6 through 19, and we will be looking at some of these as we study 1 Thessalonians because you can't help but go through the passages. It's a tribulation that nobody has ever experienced. And if God did not shorten the days, nobody would live. I mean, you think of the pandemic, right? We're, you know, 2 million, 3 million, 4 million people, let's say even should perish. One's too many, certainly, but you understand my point. Do you realize that if we had the same population today, just in the first quarter of the tribulation, even before you get to the first half of three and a half years, that you're going to have somewhere around 3 billion people. The first quarter is 1.8 billion based on current population estimates of 7.4 billion. It's 1.8 specifically. And then you'd have another 1.8 as the further judgments are poured out. Wrath from Christ. That's 3.6, 3.7 billion people. Do you understand what that would be like? We can't fathom it right now because we see how this world is responding when hundreds of thousands are perishing, which is horrible again. Please, it's terrible if, we've lost, if somebody's lost a loved one in my, you know, my deepest sympathy to you. But, but please understand what I'm saying in context is it's nothing compared to what is coming for those that reject Jesus Christ. The wrath of the Lamb. It's not the wrath of the Antichrist. It's the wrath of the Lamb. 
And so it's important we study these things, and that's what the Thessalonians were doing. They had some of this underpinning of a foundation, but they began to worry, are we missing it? Did we miss end time events? What's going to happen, Pastor Paul? And he began to give them direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You know, about when Christ is going to return, how is he going to return? And I know Thessalonica, again, was still a baby church, you might say, you know, only a couple months old. But these are not elementary topics. So as we study these things, we need to go into great detail. And I hope to do that with you all, should the Lord tarry. You know, when I was first saved, I don't know about you, but I can remember um, all I wanted to do is learn more about Jesus, his character and his love, right? His word, so I could draw closer to him. You know, it was only after several months of studying the word of God that I began to know more about and even become more inquisitive in regarding end time events. And then I couldn't get enough of it. I wanted to study every single passage of scripture that had to do with end time events because I started to realize that my God isn't grammatically challenged. And 27% of my Bible has to do with prophecy. And there's a reason that God wants me to know it. It's because he wants to comfort me. And that's exactly what it has done. You know, I can remember growing up in the Roman Catholic Church and I was young and I remember the book of Revelation and hearing of it. We never read it, of course, but I shouldn't say of course, but we never read it in the Roman Catholic Church. And I remember fearing the book, deathly afraid of it, didn't want to read it, was afraid of, I'd have nightmares, the whole thing, because of the severity and the soberness of that book. As I read it today, I'm ever so grateful that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and there's nothing to fear. I'm ever so grateful that as I read that book, I get comfort because I know that my family, the beloved that I stand before, is saved and know Jesus Christ. I am saved and know Jesus Christ, and I know what's coming. And what it's done is it's lit a fire under me to turn around and to, to preach the good news, to preach the gospel, to reach those that are lost and dying, because I don't want anybody to go through that great tribula tribulation, because God is never wrong, and he says it's going to be a seven-year tribulation, and I assure you, to the day and to the hour, it will be seven years. Jesus Christ has never been wrong in one aspect of prophecy, in one aspect of the Bible. He never will be. He can't. It's beyond contestation. And so I don't want a single soul to go through the great tribulation. And that's why I think we must teach this. This is why we're spending so much time setting context on Thessalonians to help you understand this was a baby church asking good questions. And it was God's desire that they would have good answers, answers that would satisfy the soul. Mostly, I think when I was first saved, I was just thankful to be <laughs> excited to be saved and reconciled to God, truthfully. I think that's about what consumed my heart. Now, although Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was not a long one, I would say it was solid enough to leave behind a thriving model church. Again, as we've talked about, you know, over the last hundred years, there's so many churches that don't even teach end time events, prophecy, scriptures that deal with the great tribulation. Again, we must study these words. Um, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I mentioned earlier about the comfort that he wants as we'll read the comfort of Christ's coming, specifically, again, 1 Thessalonians has in mind, in laser eye, uh, the rapture of the church, the being caught up of the air. He'll actually use two words in chapter 4, parousia in the Greek, or parousia, some people like to pronounce it. And he'll also use the word harpazo. Harpazo is the word we use for rapture. You can see that in verses uh, 15 and 16, if you'd like to study it. We'll go through that in detail as we get to that passage. But please look at verse 18. It's very, very important as we study this book. He tells us, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Again, this was all meant to be comforting, right? And 
if there was a main theme or a key verse, it's the coming of Christ to the church for 1 Thessalonians. That's the main theme of this book. And if there was a main verse or key verse, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 9, and 10. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Did you hear that? That's the plan. That's what God is communicating to this model church. Please remember that. Verse 8 again, right? Wasn't it verse 8 of chapter 1 there? Uh, 7, excuse me. It's the model church. So do you think he wants us to understand that today? If we're following the scriptures and we're a church after his name, Jesus, and he's the shepherd and the priest? I would say so. That most definitely, okay? When he left Athens, again, Paul told Timothy and Silas to remain there and to help this church and then join them later. So not only when, did, when Paul left, but Timothy and Silas stayed back at this church here and pastored this church in Thessalonica. Just so you wonder how they keep getting these teachings, we see that both Timothy and Silas were asked to stay. But then when did they meet again? Do you remember this in Acts? And uh, Paul uh, sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to encourage the Christians and assure them of the love he has for them and his concern. You remember he had tried to go back twice. If you want to see that, just even as our introduction, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see you See your face with a great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. From what is our hope, our joy, our crown of your rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. He wanted to go back at least on two occasions to see this church, to encourage them, right? And it's important to understand that he had a concern. He had a love. And that's what we're called to do. We're, to call, we're called to love one another, right? We're called even to love the lost and to reach out to the lost, to be living examples to the lost. You see, it's when Timothy rejoined Paul at Corinth that he was able to give him this good news. He gave a report, on, and that's what Paul responded back with is the letter you're reading right now. When Timothy came back and Silas stayed, Timothy came back and met Paul in Corinth, and he gave him the good word of what was happening in Thessalonica, then Paul was, by leading of the Holy Spirit, inspired to write 1 Thessalonians. And several months after that, he wrote 2 Thessalonians. So when you think about what the occasion was, it was the desire and love Paul had to comfort and give hope to this church. And the Holy Spirit put that desire in Paul's heart, and then he fueled that by turning around and saying, I'm now going to give you revelation to give to this church that will give them comfort and hope. How good is our God? Just think about that for a minute. Please understand, these aren't just books and pages on a, in a book that you're reading. These are inspired. These are holy. And these are meant to be messengers of love, comfort, warning, right? So what, is, what else is the occasion? I would suggest to you there's three, three main occasions in the writing of this letter. You know, why did he write First and Thessalonians? First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, first, he wanted to assure his friends, as we already talked about, his love and concern for them, right? After all, he left the city hastily at night. Don't forget that. He left at night. He didn't get to say a proper goodbye. And he did not want them to think he had deserted them, okay? 
Um, I think that just, again, shows a pastor's heart. Also, Paul's uh, enemies were attacking his character and telling the new believers that were gathering there that, the, that as a leader, he was really just a greedy charlatan who preached religion to make money. Now, that's the farthest thing from the truth, wasn't it? Uh, where do I get that? Because if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to come upon that in our passage. That's where you get this idea that there were these charlatans. And Paul was like, no, I didn't just flee the city. And no, it wasn't about money. Remember what we already read? What was he doing? He was providing for himself so that the church wouldn't be stumbled by doing his tent making, right? And then the church in Philippi, who at that point had done what? Had sent two love offerings over to provide for this church and to provide for Paul as the pastor there. God went ahead of them so that they could not even come up because God knew that there were going to be these charlatans and these, uh, uh, there's two different types of people. There's those that encourage and build up the flock and those that are fleecing the flock, right? The charlatans are the ones that preach a false gospel and fleece the shock, fleece the flock. A lot of words here I'm messing up. Fleece the flock that can turn around. I mean, you see it today. It's one of the things that grieves my heart, you know, when constantly talking about money, 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 or you turn on, you know, the TV and all you hear about is people, you know, God's going poor. And if you don't send your million dollars, then, you know, the, the church is going bankrupt. And it's like, what? My, my father has, you know, cattle on a thousand hills. He's never, it, it, he'll, it'll be raised when it's supposed to be raised. He'll do what, you know, where God guides, he provides. Um, but in no way did Paul want to be uh, related to any of these itinerant, itinerant, you know, rogue sort of preachers there in Greece. Because there were those at that time, and it's important to study that in church history. Part of what Paul was competing with, if I can use that word, I don't mean a direct competition, was there was charlatans going around, and they were preaching a false gospel. They were Judaizing, and they were doing this. And isn't that what we see today? As we go to give the love of Christ, you've got humanism. You've got intellectualness. You've got all these things that are going on that are competing or trying to compete with the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, right? It didn't stop Paul, did it? Did it? And it shouldn't stop us. So in this Paul, Paul, in this letter, Paul assures his readers of his love for them and his honesty in ministering to them. And you can look at that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, what was the second purpose he had in view? He wanted to ground them in the doctrines of the Christian faith, particularly in reference to Christ's returns. Incredibly important foundation of scriptures. That's why we read the scriptures here, line by line and verse by verse. We say we love him. We say he's our Lord. We say we believe, but yet our faith is only as good as what we place our faith in. Many times it's okay through faith to know Christ, but as we grow and mature in Christ, are we desiring to learn more of his character? Are we desiring to to learn and to press into Jesus, to be closer to God? Or are we simply more interested in fire insurance and just going through the motions? You know, I believe that's part of what will be contrived in the falling of away that we see that is prophesied of some of the church. I believe there are those that are not saved, that have come in more of a a social club mentality. And by going through the, the machinations, not having a true heart and salvation, a true love for the Lord Jesus Christ, will be one of those that when push come to some, push comes to shove, and serious oppression and affliction comes, we're going to see not only hearts grow cold, wax cold, we're seeing that. That'll even be in the church, by the way, not the true church of Christ, I mean, but those that are, you know, wolves among sheep. But the other thing we're going to see, and we should be very aware of these things, is that there's going to be a great delusion. They're going to be deluded in their thought. They're going to be worshiping and, and, and chasing after false doctrine, 
Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, false gospels. And already we're seeing that today, uh, just the amount of false doctrine and false gospels coming up that, you know, I, whether it was guys like Herod, Harold Campy that said, oh, the world's going to end. You know, you remember that guy? People sent millions of dollars, cleared out their 401k, sold their houses, did all these things. Oh, he's coming back, you know, this, because they didn't know the word of God. They didn't know that God said, because they didn't read the word of God, no man knows the time or the hour of Christ's return. And because they didn't know the scriptures, they were able to be manipulated. And that's why in these last days, you know, I don't know how much longer we'll be allowed to have these Bibles in our hands. I pray that every one of us, as we're studying these, like you've ever studied anything in your life, you are allowing the Lord to write this in the tablet of your heart because it will never be forgotten. And you may not be able to perfectly, you know, say every single verse, you know, every perfect adjective and verb, but you'll be able to convey the heart and mind of Christ to the lost and dying wherever you may be. And no one and nothing can ever stop that because the gates of hell will never prevail against the church that way. So it appears that the church was going through severe persecution here. And this is always a time of temptation and compromise uh, to give into uh, discouragement. And that's exactly what was going on in 1 Thessalonians. And any of you that have been discouraged with the political affairs of late, okay, with the government, with the things that we're seeing in this country, this book is for you because that's exactly what they were experiencing at that time. And God, directly through revelation of Pastor Paul, Apostle Paul, is turning around and telling them, how do you get out of that funk? Put your eyes back on Jesus. Don't get caught up in the temporal living of the flesh, the world, or the devil. Keep on keeping on. And, and God will give you that hope because you have hope in him. So you already are victorious. You already are victorious. Live like it. I mean, is basically what we're going to read here. You have hope, even for those that have passed before you, he's going to tell them. He reminds them of the truth of the Christian faith and what God has done for them. Paul was giving them hope and manifest self as comfort during any affliction. Please see that in Scripture, in chapter 4 in particular, as we already read. That is important. No matter what we go through in these last days, God has given us hope, and it will endure if we believe the greatest of affliction, the greatest of oppression. The other thing he was doing and, and he has done for us in this book as a model, uh, a book for us in First Thessalonians here, a model church, is to encourage us to live holy lives. It's not enough just to hear the word of God, but as we keep in mind these temptations of immorality, okay, because that's what we're going to read, that this letter emphasizes that we have a pure life, that we live pure and whole, right? A concept that I believe needs to be emphasized in the church today because we are to be holy and set apart. God is not calling us to go back to the vomit. He's not calling us to be contrary to the word of God, whether that's your friends, your family, I don't care who it is. You have to make a decision. Will you stand with Jesus Christ, even if that means that um, you're not to do things uh, with the people you work with at the job? They're going places that houses of ill repute that you don't belong going to. You know, I, yes, I understand you want to win them to Christ, but you going into a house of ill repute, you understand what I'm talking about there, or a bar or something, is not a way to win them to Christ. Your life being the example. People that are following you know, you're, you're never going to win people to Christ by enabling their wrongdoing. It's not going to happen. It doesn't happen that way. And God is calling 
the church in Thessalonica to live a holy life and not to be brought into the temptation and the sexual morality and all the things that are going on in the world around them, right? Uh, Paul also will correct the younger and uh, or newer Christians' confusion about uh, Jesus Christ. Paul had told, that, told them that the Lord would return in the air to take them home, but unfortunately, some of their numbers had died before he got back to them. As I said, he wanted to get back to them two or three times, but he was not able to. So some had died since Paul had got back there. Now, naturally, they mourned, right? But they were also wondering if their Christian friends would be included in the catching up of the church. And Paul's going to explain that in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. He's going to, he's going to talk about that. Uh, there was also a second f- confusion. Because the persecution was so intense, some of the believers thought that maybe the day of the Lord. Do you know what the day of the Lord is? That's actually the great tribulation. That's the way it's used in Scripture. You'll see it in First Thessalonians, the day of the Lord. Please write in the margins. That's the great tribulation. That's what that's talking to. That's Revelation 16 through 19. It's also Matthew 24. That's the day of the Lord. Um, It's not the second coming. That doesn't happen until after the great tribulation. As a matter of fact, the ending of the great tribulation is you and I, the bride of Christ, coming back with Jesus, Revelation chapter 19, okay? So it's important not to confuse this, but many at that time thought they were living in the great tribulation. As I said, some even today believe that they're living in the great tribulation. Some even believe, actually, that we're in the millennial reign. I don't, I don't understand that one. Uh, I don't even understand we're in the great tribulation either. But, but uh, we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. Certainly not something we divide over. But, but again, you'll quickly realize, if you've ever read Revelation 6 through 19, chapter 6 through 19, that it's, it's not oppression or affliction common to the believer that's going to usher in the great tribulation. Please understand that. It's not oppression and affliction. Who is the author of oppression and affliction? Satan. It's not the oppression and affliction that brings in the great tribulation. You must study scripture. It's, Re- it's Revelation chapter 6. If you hold your finger here, turn there with me. Maybe some of you have not seen this before. It's very, very important. If you have, then this is just a reminder, but please look at uh, Revelation chapter 6, 16. It's always an easy way to remember it. 6, 16. And he said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from who? The wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb. Who's the Lamb? The Lamb of God. Revelation chapter 5, right? The one who's faithful to undo the, the scrolls, right? For the great day of his wrath has come. Do you see that? The great day. There it is again. This idea of the day of the Lord. The great day. It's referred to that way. Has come. Who was able to stand? That's how bad it's going to be. Who is able to stand? It's far worse than anybody could ever imagine. And I just think that needs to be said today. It's not simply famine. It's not simply natural disasters. It's simply not, uh, you know, um, uh, pestilence. It's the worst of everything you could ever imagine in all of those. I mean, between the trees uh, dying off that way, lack of oxygen, uh, the water, most of our, our air actually becomes from the water in that you have uh, plants growing within the water that turn around and provide oxygen for us. All that, can you imagine what it's even going to be like today? We think of smog, right? Maybe you've been to LA, California, uh, China, or areas where there's deep, heavy smog. And you know what that's like, you know, it's kind of Hard to breathe. I've been out to LA many a times and can remember, you know, when you're going into the city, it's kind of like heavy over. Um, China's even worse, but 
you know, it's going to be nothing compared to that because you're going to learn, lose a quarter to a third of all the vegetation in a series of, of days or hours. So I really, I mean, we, we need to be very sober-minded about this. Uh, this is not oppression or, or affliction. It's common to the believer, you know, this is the great tribulation and the wrath that's poured out um, before, uh, you know, because of God, because of a Christ-rejecting world. If you look at Matthew chapter uh, 24, verse 22, and again, we're going to spend a lot of time in these passages as we go through and study this, but I, I want to just ground us in these things this morning. Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. If you haven't read these passages that I'm going through, I'd encourage you to please read ahead and study these. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm always available after service for questions or the pastors are available. Any of us are happy to go through these with you. But Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. And unless those days, speaking of the great tribulation, right? Uh, specifically, uh, even towards the midpoint. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. What does that mean, the elect's sake? For those that come to Christ. Did you know that? That there will be those that come to Christ during... If you read Revelation, it tells us in chapter 7 and what have you, that many nations will come to Christ. But unfortunately, because when they come to Christ, many of them will be martyred because they, they refuse to take the mark of the beast. They refuse to take that mark that will allow them to buy and sell and trade. Um, and they'll be martyred because they, it'll be almost like emperor worship again, except now it'll be cult-like worship for this antichrist. And God's wrath is poured out on Christ's rejecting world, not the bride of Christ, again, also known as the church. And we're going we're to look at this more as we study First and Second Thessalonians. You can turn back to First and Second Thessalonians again. And finally, I would say the third reason or final occasion of this letter is Paul sought to correct some misconceptions in the church. Some members of the church were not respecting or honoring their spiritual leaders as they should. That was happening. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Others were refusing to work, arguing that the soon coming of the Lord made this logical, you know, logical thing to do. Why do we need to go to work? Why do we need to do anything? God's coming anyway. No, we're to be busy about his business, aren't we? We're to be busy about the Father's business. That was 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. And then finally, there was still some confusion in their public services and how they actually conducted themselves. Again, it's supposed to be a model church. God's going to address that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. So if I could summarize it in three way, words, really, in particular, confirm, condition, and comfort. That's what he's going to do. He's going to confirm God's doctrine, his teaching, the apostles' doctrine. Okay, He's going to condition, prepare the church on how to live, right? Sanctification. And then he's going to turn around and he's going to comfort, right, the believer by looking at end times that are focused on hope, the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, that not only will we not go through the great tribulation, but no matter the amount of oppression, affliction we have, that hope will see us through. A couple more things, and then we're going to turn our attention to communion here this morning. Uh, God's message to his children in this letter is marked by the contrast in that day of paganism or heathenism, which was very much alive and well in Thessalonica and today for that matter. J. Vernon McGee in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians listed a heathen inscription found in that day. It says, after death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. 
That's in direct contrast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians is a letter from a spiritual father to his children. Paul pictured the church as his family. Do you realize that in 1 Thessalonians, he used the word brother or brethren over 19 times? In 2 Thessalonians, he uses it over nine times. This is a very intimate letter in the way he's speaking to his brothers, the church, that way. And the second letter, 2 Thessalonians, because we won't have an introduction to that because they tie together so, in so many ways, was to correct certain wrong ideas and wrong practices relating to the doctrine specifically of the Lord's return. Right? Not the Great Tribulation, but when Jesus Christ comes again, touches down on terra firma, and the, and the mountain splits in two, touches down, right, over in Israel as he had went up. And he's going to go through and correct that understanding in 2 Thessalonians. So whenever you read scripture, you should always ask, Lord, what is the special blessing that you want for me to have? What, what is the blessing you want to show me through each book? I mean, I could have gone through all of the different books that we've gone through and picked out one or two special blessings. When I look at this, uh, I believe it's the message of the return of Christ and how vital uh, the doctrine can affect our lives and the churches and make... Um, Give a hope, again, make a, a, a certain call to those that are spiritually minded. It's not focused on flesh. Uh, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with the rest, reference of a coming of Christ in some capacity, whether it's rapper, rapture or second coming physically on earth. Uh, each gives a relation to a doctrine, a practical aspect of Christian living. It's, it's very amazing if you study this that way. We don't get that in every letter the way it's brought out, hence model church again, um, that he's done for us. Here, here's a summary, just five of them if I, can, if I can bring this out for you. Chapter 1, verse 10, uh, salvation and assurance, critical, foundational to the Christian walk. You know, chapter 1, verse 10, salvation and assurance. The second one would be chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, Again, each one per chapter I'll give you. Uh, soul winning and service. Soul winning and service. Chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. Stability and Christian living. Stability. We need stability today and Christian living. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Strength and sorrow. Strength and sorrow. In chapter 5, verses 23, through 20, or verses 23 through 24, the sanctification of life. In other words, Paul didn't look on this doctrine as a theory to be discussed, but as truth to be lived. These letters encourage us to live in the future tense, since Jesus could appear at any time. We're to live the promise of his return in our manner of life. And just a quick note on 2 Thessalonians, and then we're going to turn our attention to communion here this morning. We'll discover additional truth. This letter, 2 Thessalonians, only written a few months, up to a year after. Uh, future events of the church. Keep in mind that the second letter was written to correct confusion regarding the Lord's return. Some believers thought that the day of the Lord, the great tribulation had arrived, and they wondered why the Lord, when the Lord would appear. Uh, perhaps the best way to grasp this message, if you look at the outline I sent you, or I gave you, you will see that in the back page of the outline, I've created two columns. One is 1 Thessalonians, one is 2 Thessalonians. The first one is 1 Thessalonians, and it focuses on chapter 4, verse 13, and it specifically highlights that 
Christ is in the air, comes for his church, that a sudden rapture can occur at any time and occur any day. We don't know. There is no time. There is no way to know. It's a thief in the night. No one will know. We're always to be ready and always looking. However, in 2 Thessalonians, we see that Christ, chapter 1, verse 10, Christ will come to earth with his church. It's a crisis that is part of a predicted program. Right? We, we know the dating of that. If you study Daniel, and you, we know that after the church, we know when we see the Great Tribulation, we won't be here, but from the mezzanines, we can see that we know that it's three and a half years. And then three and a half years from that, we know when Christ returns. So we actually can calculate, but not until these events come forward. It's not until these things happen. So it's not certainly not the parousia. You know, no one knows the day or the hour, correct until what has to happen first. Christ raptures the church. Once that happens, then the clock starts ticking, presuming that the great tribulation happens right after that. Now, is there anything saying it has to be the next day? No. Could it be months, a year, something like that? Sure, we don't know, and we should, we should not uh, offer opinions. We don't know, and we should stay silent. We lead people wrong, uh, or often we do that. But we do know for a fact that, that the rapture begins or ushers in the great tribulation. We know that Christ's second coming in 2 Thessalonians, it ends, and as we read in Revelation chapter 19, it ends the great tribulation. Those are sort of the bookmarks, the, the bookends, if I can say it that way, if you're tracking with me. Very, very important. So much problems with eschatology. So much problems with people studying this because they don't understand that important fundamental timeline. And again, he didn't write these things to stir up debate. I understand there's people that think differently. Uh, you know, this isn't something we need to divide over. You know, I, I make a joke with people that know me well enough. I don't want to offend anybody. But I said, you know, this is what we believe. I believe this is what the scriptures teach about the rapture. And, and I said, you know, hey, look, you can high five me on the way up. All right, you get that a boy, Pastor. You had it right. All right, high five me on the way, right? Because I believe I'm right. I believe the scriptures are right that way. If I'm wrong, right, then I, we would have to come back and really understand 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Because the church isn't given unto wrath. Jesus Christ being the head of the church, it would beat his bride. It just contradicts itself. I don't know how else to say it. But again, that doesn't mean that brothers and sisters that don't agree with that, we divide over. These are not primary issues. We don't have to divide over these things. And that's what's beautiful, right? And if they're right, I'll high-five you, okay? I'll high-five you as, uh, as I'm comforted because I'm going through the great tribulation. I can't. i got to get that last little dig in. What? I'm going to high-five you because I'm comforted because I'm going? Okay. All right. Let's just read two verses. And then Pastor Steve will come up for communion. Good introduction. You guys are all good up on context. Understand thorough. We're able to go through this. All right. Line verse one. Paul Silvanius, that's Silas, by the way, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Paul and his ministry team. He's mentioned uh, the men that were working, co-serving alongside of him. Uh, Saul, Silas was a long and experienced companion of Paul's. He traveled with Paul on his second missionary journey and was imprisoned and set free with Paul 
uh, from the Philippian jail, and that was again Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 30. When Paul came to Thessalonica, Silas came with him. We read that in Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 9. That's why he's being listed here. And therefore, the Thessalonians knew Silvanius, or as we call him, Silas, very well. Timothy was a resident of Lystra, right? A city in the province of Galatia. And that's Acts 16, verses 1 through 3. Do you remember he had a Greek father? We read that in Acts 16, 1. And he had a Jewish mother uh, named Eunice. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 5. From his youth, he learned the scriptures from his mother and his grandmother. We read that in the pastoral epistles of 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 and uh, chapter 3. Timothy was a trusted companion of Paul. He was a son in the faith, right? And accompanied Paul on many of his missionaries' journeys. Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica on a previous occasion. We actually see that he had gone there already once. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. It was on his second missionary journey. Again, if you care to study this, I hope you do. Acts chapter 17, verse 19. And we see that he gives us a typical introduction, a salutation of Paul. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. We see this and used in many of the letters. Not all of them, but many of Pauline letters have this. And it was a customary greeting to the Thessalonica Christian uh, hailing them in the grace and peace of God, our Father. Very important because if it is truly one of the earliest churches the earliest letters that would have been written, that we could actually look and see that is this Lord where the Lord had given this first revelation to Pastor Paul, to the Apostle Paul. Grace to you and then peace. Did that revelation come very early on when he was still in Corinth during that 18 month, or excuse me, year and a half I meant to say, which is 18 month uh, time as the Lord had him. It's just cool to when you start to think, when did Paul get that revelation? Grace first and then peace. And I believe it was when he was in Corinth, and certainly we see it in one of his earliest epistles. Look at verse 2, and we'll stop there today. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, right? Please notice it says, in our prayers. Circle that, right, in your Bible. Paul thought uh, of the Christians in Thessalonica, his heart filled with gratitude. Uh, the regular uh, reoccurring nature of the thanksgiving is applied um, to the use, because it's actually in the present tense, that verb, and it goes through, and when he says an R, it's the practice of giving thanks to God continually, not skipping a single day. That's what this is saying, that Paul continued to give thanks to this church of Thessalonica. It didn't have to be with many words. That's important. Sometimes we come to corporate prayer, and somebody, will, you know, they're really, they're just praying for like 10 minutes, man, and just, you know, it's like, whoo. And, you know, those things are best possibly in your prayer closet with you and the Lord. But Paul would just say, Lord, pray for those in Thessalonica. Right? God says you didn't need to have many words. It didn't have to be babbling. It didn't have to be all of this. He says, that's the work of men. He says, but in the spirit, it's just very simple, right? But then when we come to corporate prayer, some people pray out loud. Some people pray quietly. But it's, you know, a minute or two. And then somebody else takes a turn, right? All things decency and order. And that's what we're to see, yeah. Well, Paul, we get an idea here that, that not just Paul, but Timothy, Silas, you know, they're all gathering and they're praying. And it's this idea of continual prayer. Do we do that? Or do we just make a list and, and then like on a Monday check off? Okay, I prayed for you. You're done. Or do we continue? Do we walk our block every day when we're getting out to get a little exercise and pray for our neighbors? Even if we don't see them sitting on the porch, are they still in our heart? Because they're in God's heart. They're in God's heart that way. It's a good reminder. Again, it didn't have to be a long intercessory prayer. 
He says he often made mention of the church in person. And you can, you can read that in Romans chapter 1, 9, Ephesians 1, 16, and Philemon uh, 1, 4. He says that often, three different times Paul says that. He makes mention. It wasn't a long, and it says he wasn't alone. The plural here, are, implies that all three missionaries prayed for Paul together. So at this point, we'll, we'll stop here in our, our teaching. We just got started. I know you're thinking, man, we got another hour in us. I agree with you. No, um, we'll have Pastor Steve come up, and he'll lead us in communion It's the as we celebrate. Uh, just looking at the snow, I think we're going to cancel uh, Sunday night prayer tonight, corporate prayers. We just talked about prayer, but with the weather and then the ice coming, I don't want anybody to be... Uh, out and harmed uh, with travel. So I think we're probably going to cancel Sunday night prayers. I'm looking outside. But can you, uh, can we ready our hearts now for communion to, to just hear what the Lord has from Pastor Steve? And then musicians, please come up. Uh, good morning, everybody. You should see your elements on the chairs in front of you. If you don't, then please let, raise your hand, and one of our ushers will be happy to, um, to be able to get that to you. If you just want to go ahead and per- start preparing them now. So as I sit here today and we prepare to take communion, I think of God's perfect timing, right? We're, how beautiful it is that, that we start First Thessalonians referring to his return his first return to call us home, right? And how beautiful is that? And, you know, we we read in chapter 4 that it's comforting, right? We should comfort each other with these words. And those words are that Jesus is coming. He's coming to call us back. You know, in chapter 5, we see um, the promise, right? The Christ who has died for us, as we're going to remember today, what he did for us on the cross, that he is, in chapter 5, we see that he is the Christ that died for us. And his promise is that we will live with him. As long as we're believers in Christ, right? We sing, we sing like a church waiting for, or like a bride waiting for his groom will be a church ready for you. And if you believe in Jesus and you believe that, that he has died for you and he is your savior, then you are that church. And you are waiting for him. And we do that today. We come... On the, on the first Sunday of the month to, to meet together to remember, to remember what he's done and to prepare our hearts. And, and praise God we do this monthly, right? Because it's, it's, it's that reminder and we need it often. So with that, we're going to go to um, 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 11. And once again, Pastor Paul is, is speaking to the church of Corinth and um, preparing them to help remember, as Christ has commanded us to do. In chapter 11, starting in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the, Lord's Je- that the Lord Jesus, on the same night 
in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's where we are today. That we remember his death. And we anticipate his coming, his coming to call us home. Um, and my, how that seems, seems ramping up more and more every day, doesn't it? So let's just take a second and prepare our hearts before we take the elements and... Um, And I'll let us know when we can take them together, okay? Let's partake together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much for not only bearing the cross, Lord, but bearing all of our sins upon that cross. For all of us, for all of time. Jesus, as we come together today and we remember, we remember that precious gift and the suffering for us. Lord, never let us forget. Always keep our, always help us keep our eyes focused on you and that we always remember. So Lord, we thank you for this remembrance and we thank you that you've given it to us in your word. And we ask, Lord, that you just be with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Praise God. Love you guys. Be safe driving home. Remember, there's no corporate prayer tonight. Um, God go with you guys. God bless you.